0: All right, good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Isaiah 35. And I think it'll be a fitting complement to the text that we're going to be studying this morning in chapter 10 at the end and the beginning of chapter 11. So if you want to turn in your Bible to um, Isaiah chapter 35, we're going to read that whole chapter together. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find the passage that we're reading here on page 595. So Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10, and if you wouldn't mind, um, please stand in honor of God's Word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall be shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's Word, and it's good news. Amen? <laughs> Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so I just prayed it, um, but let me just make it really explicit. Here's what this message is all about. Ready? Three words. Jesus is wonderful. Okay? So if, if, you, if for some reason... Like, by the time I'm done, that's not clear. I totally failed because Isaiah 10, 20 to 11, 9, which is what we're going to cover this morning. Bottom line, Jesus is wonderful. <laughs> so hopefully that will kind of stay as the beacon as we walk through um, this passage that has a lot of, you know, historical background that might not be familiar to all of us and so forth. But don't lose the force for the trees. This passage is saying in bright neon lights, Jesus is wonderful. So, again, Lord, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word and wonderful things in the living word, our Savior Jesus, in his face and in his life and death and resurrection. So, um, just a little bit of orientation, especially maybe for those of you who are visiting or haven't been here. Earlier, I'll get, I'm not going to go back too far, but earlier in chapter 10, so we're walking through the book of Isaiah chunk by chunk, um, early in chapter 10, we saw how the people of God in Isaiah's day were so rebellious as to call forth severe judgment from the Lord, okay? And the Lord performed that judgment by using, shockingly, a cruel imperialistic power, like the world power at the time was the Assyrians, so the Lord actually used them as His tool of judgment in His hand. Okay, now Assyria didn't think that they were being used by God. They weren't thinking they were doing His bidding. They thought that the God of Israel was just as powerless against their advance as the gods of the other nations that they had conquered. Okay, but the the Lord... Then also, after he uses Assyria to judge his people, he also declares that he's going to judge the tool. He's going to judge the Assyrians. Okay, so look now at 10.15. We we covered this a little bit last week. And if you have questions and you've wrestled with God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how can God be just to to use an unjust, cruel nation like the Assyrians for his own purposes and still be holy and just— Last week, as we considered those, those questions, that tension, okay? So you can find that one online if you want to listen to it, okay? But look again at 1015. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? In other words, the Assyrians thought that they were so powerful in doing all this work. Oh, no, no. You're just an axe in the sovereign hand of the Lord. So shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or, saw, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, speaking of Assyria, mighty forest, and the glory of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So this massive military horde of the Assyrians will become a mere remnant in a day. And if you read Isaiah 36, you can see how that was fulfilled. So look how else the Lord describes how he will stop the Assyrians, this seemingly omnipotent army. He's going to stop them in their tracks. Verse 28, He has come to Aiath, he has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O light. <laughs> Whatever that. Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebin flee for safety. Okay, we don't feel the weight of that because we don't know the geography. But if you were one of Isaiah's listeners at that time... These are all towns to the north of Jerusalem, and Assyria came down from the north because they were up here, right? So if we knew the geography, this, you know, this bunch of names that doesn't mean much to us, it would actually be a chilling picture of this unstoppable advance of this powerful army that just keeps gobbling up kingdoms as they go. It's just getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. So verse 32 is a picture of them getting right next door to Jerusalem within sight. Look at verse 32. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So here are the people of God in Jerusalem seemingly just completely powerless against this oncoming horde that's just going to wipe them out like they've done everybody else. But you know what? Next door neighbor to Jerusalem is all the further they get. The Lord steps in between them and his city and the axe that the Lord has used to accomplish his work of judgment, he's now going to compare with a mighty forest. He's going to change the metaphor and he's going to say, I'm going to now wield my almighty axe and cut down that mighty forest. Look at verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So you can picture it, right? Now again, Isaiah filled with metaphorical language. There's poetry all through here. So recognize that. That's one of the challenges. And anytime you read poetry, you kind of have to understand what the metaphors mean so that you can understand what the author is saying. So hopefully the picture's clear enough. Can you picture it here? The earth is is like this smoking, desolate landscape where there was once this rich forest. All that's left, as far as the eye can see, is a vast field of stumps. You've probably seen an image like this, you know, in a movie or something like that. Just picture that. Nothing but stumps. The Lord has judged his people by the acts of the mighty Assyrians who've cut them down. They've been judged. They've been decimated. And that was just because of how horrendous their rebellion was. And then he judges the Assyrians. This is not a hopeful picture. In fact, it looks like for the people of God they have no future and no hope. It's just a bunch of stumps. But remember who it is ultimately, who cleared the forest. The Lord cleared the forest. And he didn't do it recklessly with no plan for the future. When the Lord is in the equation, there is always hope. No one is better than the Lord at new beginnings and hope for the hopeless and life from death and beauty from ashes than the Lord. So imagine the camera, okay? It's wide-angle at this point, this Smoking landscape, just a bunch of stumps on the ground. And then imagine that wide-angle shot of all this decimated landscape starting to slowly zoom in on one of the dead stumps. Look at chapter 11 now, verse 1. It's the second point in the outline. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So barrenness to fruitfulness. But man, what a small, weak beginning. I mean, what good can one little shoot do? From the stump of Jesse. What do you think the point of that phrase is? Who is Jesse's son? David. So here is another David. Here comes a king. And he's going to bring life and fruitfulness to this desolate situation. Well, there's another place in Isaiah that speaks of a shoot coming out of dry ground. Listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What a small weak beginning. I mean, what can this despicable, unimpressive man of sorrows do? It's the guy you want to hang out with on the weekend? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 goes on. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Prophecy of the cross. Jesus on the cross bearing our sin. This righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, like Russell mentioned in that Luke 18 passage, and he shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors. So talk about new beginnings or hope for the hopeless or life from death or beauty from ashes. Okay, This is the renewal that we really need. So this new David... This king is qualified to deal with our greatest problem. They're sinful, for, for Judah, for the Israelites, their sinful unbelieving hearts were their greatest problem. It's the same is true for us. So listen, there is a problem much bigger than cancer or other health problems or getting older, or poverty, or joblessness, or job dissatisfaction, or loneliness, etc. We all have a much bigger problem than those things. It's our sin that separates us from the Lord, who is our only hope and help. And he is a much more terrifying enemy than even the greatest imperial superpower. That's why Jesus said things like, don't fear those who can kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. Fear him who, after killing the body, can destroy both body and soul in hell. So if, if by Jesus' life and death, this shoot, this promised Messiah, if by his life and death on the cross we can be reconciled to God, at peace with God, then we don't face all our biggest problems in this life alone. We face them with the king of kings. If he is for us, who can be against us? So let's look at how eminently qualified this new David is to be our king. He's got more than royal blood in his veins. Okay? Though he is from the lineage of David, he has the spirit of God also filling and empowering him. He is the anointed one, anointed by the spirit of God. He is the Messiah. Messiah just means the anointed one. Okay? So look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Remember, this is all about Jesus being wonderful. (laughs) Okay? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So thus far in the course of the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord has rested on special representatives and the Spirit has endowed certain people with abilities to perform tasks, right? So think of Moses and he was a leader he led god's people out of egypt or the prophets spirit rested on them to speak god's word or even craftsmen when they were building the temple the spirit empowered these people to do skillful work okay so these two characteristics here in verse 2 wisdom and understanding their mental faculties having to do with the ability to judge and to rule so he's going to judge with wisdom and he's going to govern with understanding. Look down to the middle of verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Okay, so in other places in the Bible, you know, in Revelation 1 there's this, this vision of Jesus. And remember how it says that his eyes are a flame of fire? You know what that means? It means he sees through to the truth in everyone and everything. And in Colossians 2, it says that in Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of it is hidden in Christ. Okay, so if you want wisdom and understanding, go to Jesus. Okay, he is full of wisdom and understanding. Okay, so think about our world what what brings about so much inequity and injustice in our world well there's lots of factors but certainly a fair amount of it comes from judicial ignorance judges aren't omni- uh, omniscient or partiality corruption comes in or there's just insufficient wisdom to see through to the truth and injustice abounds Or as far as this understanding to be able to govern well, governmental ineptness, and I'm not just speaking now in our cultural moment, but always throughout history, in every country at times, governmental ineptness, ignorance, short-sightedness, and then think about just all the bureaucratic complexity and redundancy and inefficiency and corruption that happens all over the place. Well, guess what? Not so when King Jesus is on the throne. In his kingdom, he governs and judges with perfect wisdom and understanding by the power of the Spirit. So look how else the Spirit equips and empowers this king. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of, second set here, counsel and might. Okay, those two attributes go together to speak of the ability to plot a wise course and then to see it through counsel and might. So, oh, how many good plans by kings or other governing authorities are wasted by impotence when it comes to follow through and execution, right? How many poor plans, on the other hand, have been tried and retried with the exercise of plenty of money and might to nothing but ill effect, Few things in our state along those lines. Not so with King Jesus. In his kingdom, he is the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. So he makes perfectly wise plans and he has the authority and power to carry them through. Isn't that great? Back up to the rest of verse two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Third set, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then look at the beginning of verse three. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So this knowledge of the Lord is not mere book-learning knowledge. This is intimate, relational knowledge. This king knows the Lord. In fact, no one knows the Father like the Son. And so consequently, no one can show us the Father like the Son. Listen to John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Speaking of Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us, making the invisible God visible. Okay, And then the fear of the Lord, it's always a moral category in the Bible. When you fear the Lord, you shun evil. You ever see that phrase repeated? It is, in the words of one commentator, the spirit of true loyalty, So here's a king who will never give way to the fear of man. Isn't that great? He will never court competition for his allegiance and loyalty. He will always act with perfect loyalty to the Lord. And so in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, indicating readiness and faithfulness because they would, you know, Tighten their belt when they're ready to go because they had the robes, you know? Tracking? Readiness? Everybody awake? Okay. Um, faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Okay, so, so again, he'll always do what's right. He'll never break a promise. And he'll do it all, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Spirit of the Lord anointing this king. So Isaiah is just filled with good news of the God who saves, and just think about this recent section. Chapters 1 to 6 are kind of like a section. Chapters 7 to 12 are a section, and in chapter 7, you had the first prediction of the virgin who will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. God with us. And then there's a prediction of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Not ours, thankfully. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, son of Jesse, and over his kingdom to uphold it and or establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, any amens? Jesus for president. As Alec Motier, one of my favorite commentaries for Isaiah, he writes this. He says, in David's line, king after king had failed, whether by character defect or by administrative maladroitness. In other words, not Adroit, you know, not real savvy in his administration. In this king, character and rule are in total harmony. He doesn't need advisors or a cabinet of counselors. Jesus doesn't need a PR campaign to handle his approval ratings, he doesn't have to worry about approval ratings. He doesn't ever have to resort to slinging mud at the competition because there really isn't any competition. He doesn't have to manipulate or pressure or cajole to get his way or push his agenda. He can't be fooled, hoodwinked, bribed, misled, deceived. He will not overreact, and he will never underrespond. He is not biased or partial or gullible. Jesus is brilliant. He is brilliant perfectly wise and just. He's not going to lead us astray, folks. He's not going to fail us. He's not going to deceive us. He's not going to sell us a bill of goods. He's not going to make empty idealistic promises that he can't keep simply in order to kind of froth up public approval and puff his approval ratings. And you know what? He's never going to oppress us. Instead, as you've already heard once, but it's appropriate again, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Do you want to be enslaved to Pharaoh, to all the other harsh masters? No, take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That is not an empty political promise by some you know, candid, hopeful. This is Jesus for president. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus. We can trust him. We can trust him without fear. We can trust him without reservation. Listen to Ortland. If we do hold back, if we do resist him, if we do hold him out at arm's length, if we have reservations, listen to what he says we are saying that we are more to be trusted than he is. We're saying that he is no better than a pompous Assyria or a wishy-washy Ahaz in the context of Isaiah. That is our greatest sin, to think and act as our own saviors and to disrespect the Savior of the world. We often hesitate. We often equivocate. We kind of vacillate between two opinions. We run to other functional saviors, so-called rescuers and rulers. We cling to other comforters. We hold on to other helps. We believe, but oh, how we need help with our unbelief, yes? And that's the whole point of all that the Lord is doing here, (laughs) is to give that kind of help. He has help for those who struggle to trust him. Doesn't mean it's going to be an easy path, but it is a loving path. So look at it here. Third point, a refiner's fire for the remnant. We're going to actually go back up to the end of chapter 10 again and see this played out. Verse 20. In that day... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Remember how they tried to to buy off Assyria to protect them from their threatening neighbors? So they leaned on Assyria, hey, there's some serious muscle to protect us. We just need to pay a little tribute out of the temple treasury and then we'll be good to go. And God said, no, what are you you trusting in them for and not trusting in me? So, I'm going to so work to purify a people so that they stop relying on all these empty helpers, these false saviors. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Okay, here's the main point in this section. The omnipotence of the Lord of hosts that we've seen all over this this section, it's actually exercised to purify His people from all their false saviors and false gods and false refuges and false helps. Okay, so I was talking with a friend in Starbucks the other day, and we're talking about the things that we run to to self medicate. Okay, and he was admitting one that he had recently run to that instead of helping actually was biting him. Like it, you know, came around to bite him. So some of us run to food, to alcohol, satisfaction of our lusts, money, shopping, diversions, television, etc. It's all kinds of things that we run to whenever we feel threatened. So in the midst of our pain and our loneliness and our anxiety and our fear and our dis-ease, these helpers, these comforters, these saviors, isn't this so true? They seem so real. God seems so unreal. I've had plenty of people tell me that. And I've experienced it myself. But isn't it ironic how the help they offer is fleeting and false? It's actually unreal. It's a false promise. It's, it's like a mirage. And then you get there and the bubble pops and you got sand in your mouth. And yet Jesus, who seems unreal, offers real support and help and deliverance and peace. So here we are self-medicating and all the while ignoring the great physician. Listen again to Ray Ortland. This is the question Isaiah wants each of us to think through. Where do I get my security? Coping skills, confidence for the future. Many salvations are vying for our allegiance, and every false support we lean on turns around and bites us. We do lean on forces that strike us, abuse us, sneer at us. But Jesus never betrays our trust. Isaiah is helping us understand the difference that grace makes. We learn to examine ourselves. When I'm stricken with disillusionment, emptiness, self-hatred, when these emotional undercurrents are dragging me down, what false savior am I leaning on? To his glory, God will not put up with that humiliation. He wants you to know what it means to lean on Him in truth, a practical faith in Him alone, because that is your salvation. Listen to this. When He rips from your arms some false trust that has struck you a thousand times, and a thousand times you've gone back to it in servile compliance, and you're ready to go back again when God tears it away, do you see what He's doing? His grace is setting you apart as one of His remnant, dear to His heart. He wants you to rely on Him alone. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's His loving purpose? If so, then maybe He's calling you, He's calling me, He's calling us to repent this morning. That's so often just what we need. (laughs) We could feel like, I don't know what to do. Well, how about... Call it what it is <laughs> and say, I'm sorry, help. Repentance is just like climbing out of a broken cistern that can't satisfy your thirst and coming to drink at the fountain of living water. <laughs> that should kind of be like breathing for a Christian. Look at verse 21. A remnant will return. That's repentance. The remnant of Jacob is the people of God Where are they going to go when they return? They're going to go to the mighty God. Who's the mighty God? Chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. Wonderful counselor. Going to come to Jesus because he's wonderful. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is our anointed, appointed savior. He's a real savior. And all the rest is just smoke and mirrors. So how does the faith of the remnant get purified and if we are in Christ, we are that remnant now, the people of God. How does our faith get purified so that we rely on and lean on the Lord alone? Well, guess where that happens? It happens in the refiner's fire, the fire of suffering and threats and trials. Okay, For the remnant in Isaiah's day, all, the, all these wonderful promises did not mean that all the external threats were going to just suddenly, finally be removed. Look at verse 24 of chapter 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. In other words, they're still coming. <laughs> but you don't have to be afraid of them because I'm bigger than them and I'm using them and I'm, over, I'm overseeing all this. I'm sovereign. Trust me. So think about how this follows. If you were here two weeks ago, Tyler preached on Romans 8. Think about how well this echoes Romans 8. Don't fear. Not even the cruel attack of the Assyrians can separate you from God's love. If you were in the, you know, Isaiah's time. If you, if we are part of God's people, if we're trusting him, what's the worst thing they can do? Kill us? Kill us? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. So the same is for us with our biggest problems. All our greatest external threats, they're not our biggest problem. That was already taken care of by Jesus. So if God's wrath that we deserve to bear because of our sin was already born for us by Jesus on the cross, then not even, Romans 8, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword can separate us from God's love. And not only that, but every one of those fiery trials is actually a tool in the hand of this sovereign God, loving God, that He's using to grow us in grace and purify our faith so that we rely totally on Him. He wants to build our house on rock, not the shifting sand of trusting in all this faux savior stuff, false saviors that will never, they'll betray our trust left and right. So that's why Romans 8 goes on to say, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So even these threats are are turned for our good as tools to purify our faith. So the scariest threats are turned into servants Of our growth in grace. Let me just try to contemporize this, and I'm intentionally doing it in an extreme form so that you'll see how it applies to everything lesser as well. Okay? So imagine you live in the Middle East as a Christian, and your life right now is threatened by ISIS. Is ISIS outside the control of the Lord? Thank you, Chuck. That's Amen. Okay, that was last week, last last week's message, the text. Okay, so he's sovereign over them as we considered last week. As hard as it is to understand, the Lord has his purposes for their reign of terror. Okay, so can you just imagine King Jesus saying the following to those Christians under threat in, say, Syria or Iraq? Listen, this is Revelation 8. Just listen. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Smyrna, but I'm going to say it's Syria and Iraq. And to the angel of the church in Syria or Iraq, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Psalm 46 is true. So what could that look like for us? Well, we're probably not going to be threatened anytime soon, at least, by ISIS. But can you see for them, and then we'll we'll draw it in a little closer to us, can you see how in one and the same political military movement in history, both judgment on fake Christians and the purification of the true church can take place? Do you see? So it ferrets out the false, you know, like fair weather faith, foxhole faith people. If if that is the threat, I'm out of here. And it also purifies the faith of the real deal Christians in one and the same event. So will you respond in faith or will you respond in fear? Remember chapter 7? Ahaz, who is the foil to this king who is to come, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. But if you are firm in faith, you need not fear the Assyrians or ISIS or whatever the threat is in our lives. The Lord will deliver just like he did out of Egypt or against the Midianites. Look at 10, 25, and 26. How did the Lord deliver in those times? The people were weak. He showed his strength. (laughs) He did it at the Red Sea. He did it with Gideon. Okay. Now, all this judgment and purification, all these threats are they going to just go on forever? I mean, is this just one more deliverance in a string of many, you know, circle of life and, you know, ad nauseum? No. There's one section in 11.1-5 that we skipped. So remember how we saw how he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God. He makes perfectly wise plans and he has the authority and power to carry them out. King Jesus is now ruling from heaven, making his remnant people new. He is preserving us. He is protecting us. He is purifying our faith. But one day, he's coming back, and he's going to set this broken, messed up world, he's going to set it to rights. And you know what? That is bad news for all his enemies. And let's not hold the enemies out too far Paul said to the Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their appetite. That's where they run for the comfort, the rescue, the satisfaction. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You do not want to be an enemy of this king. He can certainly make good on any threat. So look down to the middle of verse 4, and we'll see that. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Sobering, but it's true. This king needs no security detail. He needs no weaponry. He needs no military muscle to back him up. He is no political windbag puffing out threats and promises that he can't fulfill. His word alone is all the weapon he needs. When when King Jesus on a white horse arrives in the vision in Revelation 19, when he comes back to set the world to rights, He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule rule them with a rod of iron. That doesn't mean he literally has a sword sticking out of his mouth. It means all he needs to judge is his Word. Just like God said, let there be light, and he created, he can say, judgment with a word and nobody's going to stand against him so his second coming is bad news for his enemies but it is really 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 good news for his people he's going to fill this barren earth with the peaceful fruit of righteousness so look at 11 6 to 9 don't you love this vision here? The wolf shall lie down with the, with the lamb. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. So look at this. Peace between predator and prey. And even a little child will be able to exercise the dominion that was originally intended for Adam and Eve. Supposed to rule and subdue. Oh, in this... New world, a little child can do that. (laughs) Verse 7 The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So there will simply no more be nature red in tooth and claw. Nothing but peace and safety and rest, no more threats. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is so awesome. I didn't see this until um, I got some help from Alec Motier. Listen to this brief comment he makes. The curse is removed. The enmity between the woman's seed, Genesis 3.15, and the serpent's seed is gone. In other words, there will be no more Serpent, capital S, to make the serpents a threat. Because Jesus stomped on his head at the cross. He continues to wiggle and flail to wreak as much havoc until the day when Jesus comes back and throws him into the pit of hell forever. Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Total peace, perfect peace, shalom, human flourishing as far as the eye can see, every nook and cranny, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is paradise restored. So we were made in God's image to reflect his glory. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth so that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But sin shattered that image, and now we reflect the fangs as well as (laughs) his glory. But Jesus, the image of the invisible God, died so that we could be made new, new creations in Christ, and be conformed to his image so that we can once again reflect his glory. And one day all the threats, everything set to rights, all the threats will be removed. And from sea to shining sea, it's only going to be the knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, which is the picture in Isaiah 35, which is Wonderful. So I'm going to close with a bit from a poem that John Piper wrote about the end, which is really the beginning. And then after that, I think you'll see why we're going to sing Joy to the World. Don't you love, and this is not just for Christmas, folks. This is all year round. This is is good stuff. Far as the curse is found. Jesus is bringing joy and renewal, okay? So this poem, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a a pretty big chunk of it here, it's called Justified Forevermore. So it starts kind of picturing the end of Revelation, um, say around chapter 20, 19 and 20. As far as any eye could see, there was no green, but every tree was cinder black, and all the ground was gray with ash. The only sound was arid wind like spirits' ghosts, gasping for some living hosts in which to dwell, as in the days of evil men before the blaze of unimaginable fire had made the earth a flaming pyre for God's omnipotent display of holy rage. The dreadful day of God had come, the moon had turned to blood. The sun no longer burned above, but blazing with desire had flowed into a lake of fire. The seas and oceans were no more, and in their place a desert floor fell deep to meet the brazen skies, and silence conquered distant cries. The Lord stood still above the air. His mighty arms were moist and bare. They hung as weary by his side until the human blood had dried upon the sword in his right hand. He stared across the blackened land that he had made and where he died. His lips were tight and deep inside. The mystery of sovereign will gave leave and it began to spill in tears upon his bloody sword for one last time. And then the Lord wiped every tear away and turned to see his bride. Her heart had yearned 4,000 years for this. His face shone like the sun and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss she heard the master say, Watch this. Come forth, all goodness, from the ground. Come forth and let the earth redound with joy. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne, a stream began to flow and laugh. And as it ran, it made a river and a lake and everywhere it flowed, a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead." O God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days, and let us see the joy of what is yet to be, and may your future make us free, and guard us by the hope that we, through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. Let's pray, and then let's sing. Oh Lord, I pray that we would receive our King and that every heart in this room would prepare Him room and welcome Him. And Lord, I pray that we would not have our minds and hearts set on earthly things, but that you would help us to set our minds and hearts on things above, on our great God and Savior the Lord Jesus, that he would be our king and master and that we, his people, would walk this way of holiness looking forward to the day when you will come again to make your blessings flow far as the curse is found. In Jesus' name, amen.